everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Kim Worthy is running for a fifth term as Wayne County Prosecutor, a position she has held for 16 years. In that time, she has helped develop diversionary courts, she has championed better treatment programs, and fought hard to test and prosecute a massive backlog of rape kits that were found abandoned in the Detroit Police Storage Unit. But her time as prosecutor has not been without controversy. Critics say the office still acts as part of a tough-on-crime system that unfairly lands on the shoulders of people of color. And they say in cases where the office has made missteps, it has been difficult to get them to admit blame and to apologize. Those critiques are part of what is motivating Worthy's opponent in this year's Democratic primary contest, defense attorney Victoria Burton-Harris. We spoke with Ms. Burton-Harris on the show last Thursday, and you can find that conversation now on WDET.org. Today, we are really happy to have Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy with us to talk about her campaign and her plans for that office in the future. Kim, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, how are you? I'd rather be in the studio, but I hope everybody is well. Yes, uh, we would normally have you here with us, but uh, it's safer to do this over the phone now. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, let's start with uh, you talking about uh, what you feel you've accomplished as Wayne County Prosecutor and why you're running for a fifth term. Well, there are a number of reasons, a lot of reasons actually, but I know the time is short. We have we were doing innovations in prosecution among the first in the nation back in 05 when nobody was doing it. And to date, we have diverted over 18,000 youth and adults from the criminal justice system. Over 18,000. That's enough to fill up the big house in Ann Arbor 19 times mm-hmm. with people. And so we, would, we believe in treatment. We believe in proactivity. We believe in um, mental health reform. We believe in police reform. We believe in criminal justice reform. And we were working at the, with those postulates a long time ago. We formed the first elder abuse unit because the senior population was being in we formed the first in the nation unit that deals specifically with LGBTQ crimes when I found out that six trans women of color, and I talk about a community that's ignored, when they had been killed in Palmer Park and no one was doing anything about it. So I co-created the Fair Michigan Justice Project with now Attorney General Dana Nessel. We also worked very closely with the 24 Wayne County Treatment Courts, both being mental health, drugs, veterans, homelessness, and sobriety. Uh, I am a 30-year advocate for, for mental health reform with children, adolescents, and um, adults. My family and I have been critically involved with, the, with that for many, many decades. I also um, was an early advocate for uh, police reform and against police brutality. I have the only unit of dedicated prosecutors in the state that prosecute police for misconduct and police brutality. Um, we have, and this is a, a number that I don't like to quote, but the truth is that we have uh, prosecuted over 70 officers over just the last uh, um, four, four, three or four years alone. Mm. So again, we're not afraid to do it. We are um, strong when it comes to victim advocacy. We are strong when it comes to defraud, and I could go on. So for all those reasons, uh, we, I want to be returned to my seat, and also we can talk hopefully, hopefully later on about the things we have in progress now. Yeah. So I, I also want to give you a chance to talk about uh, the work that you've done on rape kits uh, that were sitting in a storage unit, uh, uninvestigated, 
unprosecuted for a really long time here in Detroit. And the, the culture change that I feel like you've tried to affect with regard to handling of sexual uh, sexual crimes here in, in Wayne County. It's not just about going back and fixing those cases that were never dealt with. You've really tried to change the way we think about how we deal with these crimes. Absolutely. And, and I think, I hope everybody knows the story about how those were discovered. This is an 11-year journey for us that we're still working on. The work that we've done in Detroit is now a national model. We are the leading place in the country that people look to when they discover untested rape kits in their jurisdiction, and it happens all the time. As you know, uh, Stephen, there are um, projected to be 400,000 untested abandoned kits in the country, so this is not new. But we also did this. We worked with the state, and we had a pilot project. We knew that if you could track a package that you order on Amazon, for example, and you know where it is at any given time, and if it doesn't arrive on your doorstep, that you can track it through the system. And so we knew that we could do that. We had a pilot program with UPS where we proved that that could be true. And the state now has, as a result of our work, a statewide tracking system that's web-based. And that means if a person is sexually assaulted in Wayne County, they go to Wayne County Safe, Wayne County Sexual Assault Forensic Examiners, have the kit, have the kit done. It is entered into the system. It is connected to the Michigan State Police. When a jurisdiction is statewide now, whatever jurisdiction it is, then it's picked up, it's entered into the web-based system. When it's taken to the lab, it's entered into the web-based system. When it's picked up by that jurisdiction, whether it's Lansing or Ishwining or, or Mackinac or Detroit, it's entered into the system. And so the, the most exciting thing to me about that, and this was our idea, that there's a victim portal. So if you are a victim of sexual assault or a survivor of sexual assault, you can also enter into this web-based system and find out where your kid is. So I, I want to talk about some of the criticisms that have been leveled against your office and specifically criticisms leveled by your opponent in the Democratic primary in August. Uh, when we talked with her last week, one of the things she said is that we're still getting it wrong, that we're jailing too many people and we're jailing the wrong people. And in her estimation, a lot of that has to do with the discretion that's exercised in the prosecutor's office, um, how would you, how would you respond to that? Well, this is a, this is a situation where someone who has no experience, knowing six years out of law school, would say they don't understand how the system works. And we are presented with twenty thousand cases a year. We are we issue only about two thirds of those or less of cases that are brought to us by police agencies. So there are over thirty percent that we look at, we examine, we investigate. We don't issue for varying reasons. And sometimes we will send it back, and sometimes it will come back in a condition that we can affect um, charge. So the, the levels that have been, uh, the, the basis that have been leveled by her that we don't look at cases is just absolutely false, as are the numbers of wrongful convictions and all kinds of issues that are just patently, patently false. Mm. But the other thing that we need to re- recognize, and one of the things that has come out, there have been two studies about jail studies that have come out recently that I know you're involved with, yes. and they talk about, how are you familiar with? They talk about how the wrong people are, are jailed, and I agree. But what we have to remember is that most of those cases are not state cases. Uh, traffic ordinances, civil infractions, some, some, we do misdemeanors, but we don't do all the misdemeanors. We don't even do most of the misdemeanors, but we do do higher level misdemeanors. And we remember when you look at those, when you look at the percentages, 
this percentage of the people that are in, in, in the jail are mainly from the city system. And that's not something, I'm not assessing blame, that's just the fact. But also, um, when we look at what has happened with COVID since March 3rd of this year, there were 1,388 people in the jail. As a result of my work with the Chief Judge Kinney, jail medical personnel, the Sheriff's Department, attorneys from the inmates, jail population because of COVID has reduced by 42%. It's now hovering right around uh, 800, sometimes a little bit above 800, sometimes a little bit below 800. And, so, and what we have found was we have about 1,200 people on tether. And what we have found that when it comes to lower-level crime, lower-level crime doesn't seem to have gone up a lot. And so I am the first person to say that that is proof that sometimes people are in the jail that shouldn't be. Also, we should keep in mind, and this is critically important, this is something that's not mentioned, violent crime has gone up exponentially. Um, it, homicide is up by 123%. So when you look at who's in the jail, some people ought to be in the jail, and that's your violent offenders, and also some of your misdemeanors, your domestic violence, your, your, your stalkers, your aggravated stalkers should be in the jail. But there does have to be a more critical eye. But we're not the ones that set the bond. In fact, we don't even have the personnel to go over to the arraignment on the, um, on the warrants where bond is set. So certainly we do have control over some of that, and certainly we should, uh, we should be looking at these numbers. And I, I welcome any report that's done on criminal justice reform and jail reform because there are some good ideas there. There are some bad ideas there, too, but there are some good ideas there that we should certainly look at, and I don't have a problem doing that at all. Mm. Uh, you, you've mentioned the Conviction Integrity Unit, and that's another uh, issue that your opponent brings up. She says that there is only one full-time attorney in that office, and you've countered saying that there are seven people working in that office. I guess the question is, are they all full-time attorneys? What she's saying is she would assign more attorneys uh, to, to be doing that work. How many do you have in that office right now? We have eight people working in the unit. And again, a simple push of the mouse would have, would have taken care of that. We have, they're all full-time except for one. We have one full-time detective. One of our detectives is that will be moving to full-time. And then we have a part-time volunteer. And then we have one, only one lawyer that's part-time. So we have a part-time investigator, but we also have a full-time investigator, and we have a part-time lawyer, but there are other full-time lawyers there. And again, that's information that's easily uh, you can look up. As you know, we hired Valerie Newman, who is one of the nationwide experts on this, and we went to the Wayne County Commission last, I believe it was last January or February, and we went with some of our honorees who spoke before the Wayne County Commission so we can double the size of the unit. Of course, the unit certainly has to be enlarged. We know that. We've been push pushing for that for well over eight months now. But again, I don't match manufacture money. We have to operate within a budget, and we must stay within that budget. So we've asked the Wayne County Commission back in either late January or early February, along with our supporters, some of our honorees that are some of our biggest supporters of this unit, for more funds to be allocated toward this unit. So, so I, I guess I'm a little confused by, by the answer. Is there more than one full-time attorney assigned to that yes. unit? There is. Yes, there are three full, there are four full-time attorneys, one half-time attorney, one full-time detective, one half-time detective, and one volunteer. So there are four full-time attorneys assigned to the unit. Okay. Uh, and she says that there should be more. Do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think that that unit is staffed the way it should be and doing the work it needs to be doing? 
Well, of course, it should be more in all aspects of my office, and you know that. I've been a, a constant for the last 15 years. We've been talking about all lots of resources, and I, I just I, I just laid out for you that yeah. we went to the Wayne County Commission in, in, in February with our exonerees to expand the unit mm-hmm. because the volume of work that we're getting. We don't have thousands of wrongful convictions in Wayne County. That's just untrue. But we do have over 1,000 requests to look at investigations. We've looked at 700. We still have 500 to go, and we've exonerated 20 people. And so, of course, our, our, of course, we'd like more people to be able to move faster through these cases that are referred to us. So, so, and that gets to a, a larger question, I think, about the work that the prosecutor's office does to kind of check itself or check other parts of the criminal justice system. You know, we're having this incredibly robust debate right now about the role of the criminal justice system in, in American lives, and especially in the lives of African-Americans and other people of color. Uh, a lot of the criticism that has been leveled at you over the years has been that you are, are reluctant or slow to question uh, when mistakes are made in your office or in the police department. Um, I want to give you a chance to, to answer that. I mean, there are, there are things that um, there are specific cases we, you and I have talked about before. Devante Stafford, Sanford, for instance, mm-hmm. who was wrongly convicted, and you were criticizing for taking uh, a long time to come around to evidence that he was innocent. Um, uh, the, the, the ruling on juvenile lifers, getting a chance at parole, was another area where I think a lot of people felt you were slow to to think, rethink that. Um, I want to give you a chance to, to answer those criticisms. Well, as far as juvenile lifers are concerned, there's a lot of misinformation. I'm the most progressive prosecutor in the state when it comes to that. When it came, when that decision came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, it directed what we had to do. And we had to go through each and every one of the 144 cases that we had within a very short time period, which mm-hmm. we did. It was yeah. a six-month period. So we, we reviewed all of those cases. We pulled transcripts. We, it, it would take too long to, to explain everything that we did. And then we had an additional panel of nine people that went through every case. And then I went through every case with two other lawyers and then determined the number of cases that we would agree to have a term of years. And I believe it was an 81 at the time. That's gone up exponentially. But let's talk about what's happened to date. And we're the only prosecutor's office in the, in the state that has done this. There have been 95 hearings. Of the 95 hearings, 60, and 61 juvenile lifers are out. So, and there's only been two out of the 95 that we advocated to have life that, that, that are serving life in prison without, without the possibility of parole. There were four hearings for that. So the defense presented their evidence, we presented our evidence, and then the court decided only two out of the 95. And people have been saying 95 had gone to prison without the possibility of parole. That's not true. So we have the numbers to show that. We have about 49 or so cases left, and we can only move as fast as the court gives us a date. We're ready to go on these cases. We can only move as fast as the defense. Um, can go forward. And oftentimes it's the defense asking for adjournments as well. And we've even done a a juvenile life hearing during this pandemic. And so, again, um, there's no delays that are due to us. And we we must be... I think the specific criticism was that you, even after reviewing all of it, you said that half of Wayne County's juvenile lifers who were in prison still shouldn't get parole hearings. Uh, and, And so it wasn't about the ones that you did forward, it's about the ones that you didn't. Well, first of all, it's not half. We had 144, and we originally decided on 81, 
and we've had a number, I'm just sure, I think it's 12 or 13, where we've uh, asked for a, a term of years, because we, as we've gotten more information from the defense attorneys, as we've gotten more information from the MDOC, this was always fluid. Mm-hmm. And a number of decisions were made because we just didn't have the appropriate information, and we had to, have, we had to let the courts know which ones we decided on. So there have been a number of cases, well over 10, that we've added to that 81. And again, we have about 49 or so left. And so not all of those 49 are cases that we are going to be asking for life in prison without the cost of the parole. Mm-hmm. So it's fluid. We have changed on over 10 cases. And again, we're the only county in the, in, the, in the state that has done this. Some counties have done nothing in terms of having any hearings. And so we've done 95. And again, we can only move as fast as the court says. So I just I want to reiterate, only two are now going to still continue to serve life in prison without the possibility of parole out of the 95. Okay. And, and we, as we go forward, uh, there will, we will see what the court decides. Okay. We've got a couple of callers I want to work into the conversation here. Let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, uh, Stephen, uh, Prosecutor Worthy. Uh, yes. Ms. Worthy, you, you gained the notoriety of, of prosecuting members and butts. And uh, given that experience, what are your thoughts about what's going on today? Great well, question. You're right. I, yeah, go ahead. You're, go ahead, you're right. Back in 1993, well, 1992 was when Malice Green was killed. That's when, when, when L.A. was on fire because of the police officers that, that beat and followed Rodney King were, were acquitted. And in our case, we were able to gain a conviction of murder in the second degree. It still stands as the only the first case in the history of the, of the United States where on-duty police officers were convicted of murder, and we've been on a on a decades-long trek since then. We had I had a plan back in actually just one example of the work that we've done since then is back in 2011 we got all the way to the Obama White House with our plan to eradicate police brutality, and we were among the first that was calling for a nationwide database of police uh, of police uh, uh, um, misconduct. And so, again, some of, some of the, I don't have time, but some of the, we have a 10-point plan. I'll just mention a couple of others. One is that I think there's, that police officers should be mandatory reporters, just like teachers and coaches are mandatory reporters of child abuse. Hmm. And police should have to mandatorily report any instance of police brutality that occurs because we don't see it all. We only see the ones that, that are captured on tape that we see on TV. But there are other instances of police brutality we just will never see and we won't know about unless police are mandatorily reported, uh, mandatory um, to report that. And so, again, there are eight other points of things that we talk about. Of course, the no-brainers like no chokeholds, no strangleholds, um, diversity training, um, implicit bias. Of course, all that should happen. But again, we are working now with the governor's office and other state entities to develop a statewide plan for the eradication of police brutality. I wish that this had happened before. I wish that more black, black and brown men didn't have to die before people pay attention. I wish that we could fix the roof before while the sun was shining and not while it's leaking. But I'm glad now that at least it looks like we're going to have some real reform, even though there have been people like me who have been talking about this for a very long time. Uh, again, Tim, thanks very much for the call and the question. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the Good program. Good morning. Yeah, I, uh, I attended um, one of the budget meetings where uh, Ms. Worthy was pleading her case for more money. She also addressed the fact that many young attorneys come to her, cut their teeth in her department, and once they get two years, they go to other other places where they make more money. Would you please address how you're going to get more money? Mm. Great question, Bernadette. Uh, Go ahead. 
thank everybody in the Detroit media knows how my decades, my over a decade long quest for more money, even back in 2012, where we had to sue the county, and I hope we don't have to do that again. But again, we are the we are uh, even though things are improving under Warren Evans, we are still the least resourced office in the country, and so we try to do what we can, the best with what we can. We are having a crisis now, even further than that in Wayne County. They're projected to be a $150 million deficit, and I think we'll be further affected. But to do the job right, to do the job perfectly, we need to have more resources. We don't have, like, for instance, in Cook County in Chicago, two and three lawyers that are assigned to a courtroom. We don't have that here. And we're often stretched to cover what we have. And that's why we're often accused of moving too slowly, because we still are going to do the job right. We are still not going to rush through and issue charges to the, based on all the information that we have at the time faster than we need to. And that's why we're often, uh, we're often accused of moving too slow. But we have to. We have to do the job right. And we do over 20,000 cases a year. That means during my tenure, there have been over 320,000 cases that we've had to look at. And so we do it with what we have. We need more resources. I spend probably half of my time pleading for resources. And that's why... I have over developed relationships in state government, in federal government, in local government, and we we usually pull in about twelve to fourteen million dollars with grant money a year. And why are we able to do that? Because I have the relationships, and they know when a request comes from the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, we know what we're doing. We have a clear plan. We've dealt with everyone before. They know that we will spend the money the way we're supposed to spend the money. And you know, getting grants is no way to run a railroad, but that's the way we keep things together by being innovative and very, very out-the-box thinking of getting more resources from the office. We have, during the rate kit crisis, we have the first that we know of public-private partnership to raise money to case the kit, test the kits. We are working currently with a, a, a two nonprofits to be able to fund some of the, the pro, more programming we want to do. We partner with Wayne County Mediation Services because we're moving toward mediation now as well in lieu of charging and in lieu of incarceration. So we have to be, have to be very, very innovative to even be able to make and do the jobs that we're mandatorily, constitutionally mandatory, mandatorily reported to do. Yeah. Okay, Kim Worthy. It's a huge problem. I mean, we have, we have if, if my prosecutors work in my office for two or, three, two or three years, they are lured by other departments and other areas five years after the feds when they're paid $20,000, $30,000 more than they can make in my office. Yeah. I don't set the pay structure, um, but that's the way it works. Yeah. Okay, Kim Worthy, Wayne County Prosecutor, seeking a fifth term in that office. Thank you very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Be well. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, 36th District Court Chief Judge William McConico is going to join the program to talk about his decision to extend the eviction moratorium here in Detroit. We're going to talk the rest of the show about housing issues here in Detroit and Southeast Michigan. Stay with us on Detroit Today.